0: Back in 2004, we had an event here. Billy Graham's son, Franklin, came here to do a weekend crusade. And I was part of the committee that was actually planning that event, and I actually was the one that named the event. It was called the East Coast Crusade with Franklin Graham. And I said, we have the East Coast Music Awards and things like that, and we're trying to draw people from all over the maritime provinces, the East Coast of Canada, so why not call it this? And it stuck. I have no good names anymore. James comes up with all the ideas now. But over the course of that weekend, Franklin spoke four times and around 1,300 people made a spiritual commitment to the Lord. Now just imagine if after that final service, which was on the Sunday evening, I went into the backstage area and back in the corner there was this man just throwing an incredible fit. And as I got closer, I realized it's Franklin. And we're friends by this time now. So I say, Franklin, bud, what's what's wrong? And he here is this supposedly seasoned evangelist pouting and throwing a temper tantrum. And I said, aren't you excited about all the people that have given their lives to the Lord? And, and he said, no. He said, I'm so annoyed that these people have con- Their faith and repented. I can't believe that God forgave them. I can't believe that life just goes on as normal. Now, I know that sounds outrageous, but on a much larger scale, that's what actually took place with Jonah in this account that we're going to look at here this morning after a rather frightening encounter with a large fish, and he repents during that time, and he goes to the big city of Nineveh, which you'll remember is nicknamed City of Blood, and he goes there and he preaches an eight-word sermon that we talked about last week. And I also mentioned how it wasn't even a good sermon. There was no scripture in it, no illustrations, just 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he just kept preaching that message. Now probably, if he got into the second day, he'd have to say 39 days and Nineveh would be overthrown and keep adjusting that way. But chapter 3 showed us that amazingly, these people of Nineveh believed God. And the king himself heard about it. And so he decides, I'm going to get in on the action here. And he then declared this to his citizens so in uh, he instructed them to not drink or eat anything to urgently call on the name of the Lord so he actually proclaimed a 40 day fast and then in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened So there's a tremendous time of rejoicing within Nineveh. Everyone is happy over the fact that God didn't follow through on his plan. But everyone's happy except this one person, Jonah. And his concern for Israel was greater than his concern for Nineveh and these violent and cruel people. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't care about them at all. And he just kind of went through the motions of preaching. Now there have been the odd time during all my years of ministry when I've gone through the motions. I'll be looking out at you and and different thoughts might pop into my mind Maybe I, James and I wish you could see what we see when we look out here on Sunday mornings. And then maybe I'll look at someone when I announce the scripture and they take out their iPhone and I'm thinking, now, is that person answering a message or are they looking up the scripture? And then, is that man really falling asleep back there? And just all kinds of things that can get into your mind if you allow yourself to get off track. So Jonah... He just puts it on autopilot. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days, and he gives the same thing over and over again. And there's no alternative, there's no plan B, there's no hope, but on their own, the people repent. They believe the message, they're convicted by it, and maybe the brevity of it was also something that they appreciated. So they repent, and God has compassion, and then he doesn't follow through on his threat. And the Bible says that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And we say, why? Was his hatred for the people of Nineveh that great? That nothing less than the destruction of that capital city would make him happy? Or maybe he's unhappy because his prophecy hasn't come true. And he's going to be a little embarrassed when he goes to the next prophet gathering. And, Jonah, how are your prophecies doing lately? But we, we don't know what it was, but he was unhappy. And just to recap quickly, chapter 1, Jonah runs from God. Chapter 2, Jonah runs to God. Chapter 3, Jonah speaks to the people, and they run to God. But then chapter 4, Jonah runs from God again. But this time, it's in anger. So we're going to look at three different truths in this fourth chapter of Jonah. And the first truth is the fact that God's way is the only way. So right now, we're looking at verses 1 to 3. But this made Jonah very unhappy, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. When I was still in my own country, this is what I said would happen, and this is why I quickly ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a God who is kind and shows mercy. You don't become angry quickly, and you have great love. I knew you would not choose excuse me, I knew you would choose not to cause harm. So now I ask you, Lord, please kill me. It is better for me to die than to live. And I think really Jonah's prayer here is in such sharp contrast to his prayer when he was in the belly of that great fish. There his life was in danger, and he praises God, and he thanks God and for his salvation. And here he is days later, he's alive, he's well, he's comfortable, everything's going great, and he's asking God to take his life. So things haven't gone the way that he wanted is what he's basically saying. You've spared my enemies. How can I face my people anymore? So I just as soon go ahead and die. Take my life, Lord. But an entire city repents, yet Jonah thinks it's very wrong and he becomes very angry but here's something we should note any time that we think god doesn't know what he's doing or we think that we know the better way to do something it's always going to lead to confusion and it's going to lead to anger but i like god's response as we read on in the fourth verse the lord replied what right do you have to be angry now this verse is actually key not only to this chapter, but it's key to the whole book. Maybe here's this great picture of a patient and loving father as he gently says, now come on, Jonah, think about this. Does it make sense for you to get angry over this? I created these people. I'm the one that has the best interest in them. Sometimes we need, it could be a parent, it might be a friend, it might be a spouse. Sometimes it's a child that just kind of brings us back to reality at home or at work or at the hockey game. They might say, it was just a wrong number. They didn't intentionally call to wake you up. Why are you so annoyed about this? Or it could be, I've got a few things to finish before I come home for dinner. Why are you so upset about that? Or get this one. It's just a hockey game, Greg. And no, it's not. It's more than a hockey game. So we get our priorities out of whack sometimes. And we need to remember that the God of the universe is in charge. And it's not us. So does Jonah have any right to question God's actions? Do we? Nineveh repents and Jonah's mad. So here's a verse that's quoted several times in the Bible from the 103rd Psalm. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now we love that verse when it applies to us, when God is slow to get angry and abounding in love, but we don't like it when it's applied to our enemies. And that's the point where Jonah is at here. So he hopes that this fit of anger will motivate God to maybe change his mind and Destroy these people after all. Because he says, after all, they wouldn't have repented if you hadn't threatened them in the first place. So Jonah doesn't like it that God chose to forgive them so quickly, but he's not the one in charge. God is, and God's way is the only way. And the second truth is that God's timing is the best timing. Now we're in verse 5. Jonah then left through the east gate of the city and made a shelter to protect himself from the sun. He sat under the shelter waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. And the Lord made a vine grow up to shade Jonah's head and protect him from the sun. And Jonah was very happy to have that vine. So Jonah heads off up a mountain, he's a safe distance away from the city, but he's up high enough so that he can actually see what's going on. And he's hoping that there'll be some type of destruction. But God prepared this plant to actually give him shade. The same God that prepared a great fish to swallow him prepares this plant. But we see some things happening here in God's timing. And we see his plan unfolding. So in verse 7, But the next day, when the sun rose, God sent a worm to attack the plant so that it died. And as the sun rose higher in the sky, God sent a very hot east wind to blow. And the sun became so hot on Jonah's head that he became very weak. So God, who produced that vine in the first place to grow up and provide shelter for Jonah, he now produces a worm that comes along and destroys the joy that Jonah has. And the plant withers and dies, thus is not able to protect him properly from the sun. And the next thing God does is he sends a wind from the east. And when we typically read about a wind coming from the east in the Bible, that's usually in regards to God doing something to harm his enemies. But all of a sudden we come to this point in the book of Jonah and everything changes. And for the first time, God is bringing an east wind against Jonah, who's actually representative of all Israel. So we wonder, why has God made this departure from the precedent that's been set? Well, there are two reasons First of all, sometimes prophets and preachers can think they know better than God regarding how things should unfold and who should be saved and who should be condemned. And also, it's God saying, I'm on Israel's side as long as Israel's on my side. And we're taught in the Old Testament that God is a jealous God, that he doesn't want us to have any other gods before him. So when Jonah... In essence, all Israel refuses to be on God's side in regards to who should be eligible for salvation. God even turns against his chosen people and prophet. So in verse 8, Jonah, he wished he was dead. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you think it is right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah answered, It is right for me to be angry. I am so angry, I could die. So he's just like an immature child. He's pouting. He's throwing a little temper tantrum here. He's complaining. And for the second time, he wishes that he was dead. He wants shade for his head. He wants relief from the frustration. But God says, no. And sometimes when we feel that God has forgotten us, or maybe chosen to take a different side on things. We start begging God for some shade. Have you and have you ever noticed that? God, if there's going to be divorce in this world, could I at least at some point be happily married? God, if there's going to be cancer in this world, could you at least provide a cure to remedy the situation for everyone? And God, we have all kinds of mixed emotions that we don't like when it comes to Vladimir Putin and what he is doing to the country and people of Ukraine. So we say, come on, God, give us some help here. A little shade would be appreciated. But we always want the shade according to our timetable. And we have a hard time accepting God's time frame. And yet God is unfolding his plan. He's bringing good out of bad even when we don't understand God's timing and realize that it is the best timing because God's way is the only way. And the last truth that we see is that God's love should be our love. So we read this story and we wonder, what is Jonah thinking? How can he be so self-centered to restrict his love and compassion to just his own people and not care about anyone else? If James and I were to do this type of thing, a lot of you would be in trouble because we'd be restricting our love and our compassion for people from PEI, and everybody else would be left out. But God is saying, there are tens of thousands of people who are spiritually clueless and in desperate need of a relationship with me. This is a good thing, Jonah. It's not a bad thing. Then in 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So God's saying, you didn't plant that vine You didn't water it. You didn't prune it or or do anything like that. Therefore, this is of my doing. It's not your doing. So it's my right to decide what is going to be done with it. And that's true whether it's a small plant or whether it's this huge city. So with Nineveh and with Israel, God can choose who will be saved. He can choose who will be restored and God can decide how things turn out. So we must not run away from him angry and upset with his plan. We need to trust his plan and follow his leading. Now at this point, it would be really nice to say, let's go to verse 12 and see what that says, but there is no verse 12 and there's no fifth chapter. This is where the book ends. And, and my first question is, why would God include this historical account? And my second question is, why would he conclude it at this point? Why don't we get a a little more of the story here? And those are great questions. And maybe it's because sometimes when we get the reading in the Bible, we actually get a little discouraged and we think, oh, God could never use me. We read about Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and we look at, all the different things he did in faith. And even going to the point of placing his son on an altar to sacrifice him, this son that was promised. And he knew this was the only promised son. But he felt that maybe somehow God would bring him back to life again. So I look at that and I think, wow, I could never be a person of faith like that. Or you look in your Bible and you read about Joseph. And the guy had hardly a flaw in his life. The only thing he can really see is pride because he keeps bragging about the fact that his brothers are going to bow down to him and he's going to be above them uh, And a prophecy which actually came true. But he was a man of integrity, always making the right choices. And I think, well, I I could never measure up to that. Or you look in your Bible and you stumble across the account of Esther's life and you say, wow, That young woman, she wasn't just beautiful on the outside, but she was so courageous on the inside that she was willing to risk her life and to stand before the king of Persia pleading for the freedom for the Jewish nation. She was trying to save that nation. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not me to stand before someone in that situation. And you know something, we have a growing number of, of Iranian Christians here in Halifax that meet in our building on Friday nights, and they actually trace their roots back to that same Esther who became the Queen of Persia. So it's really interesting how the Bible isn't just a story, it is history, and it intertwines with the history of our world today. And then on Tuesday, following Ukrainian President Zelensky's passion plea to our government for more help from Canada, The leader of the opposition spoke for a few minutes, just as a number of others did. And she actually, in her brief speech, used a variation of Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And I don't know if she knew it was from the Bible or if her speech writer had come up with it for her. But in there, it was Mordecai, the brother of Esther, speaking to him. And he said, Esther... Perhaps you have been made queen for such a time as this. And then you read about some of the disciples, and they boldly spoke up and preached about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when they were told to keep silent, they said, no, we can't. We have to keep sharing. And then they said, okay, we'll throw you in jail. We'll throw us in jail. We'll kill you, then kill us. I "I don't think that's me. Or you read about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she's heard the whispers all her adult life about her pregnancy and the birth of Jesus. And she has taken the heat in her hometown, yet she remained faithful through all of that. And then she had to watch that perfect son die on the cross as our atoning sacrifice. So the more you read, the more you think, Lord, you better inspire me with someone that's more like me. Someone that, because I'll never reach up to an Abraham or a Joseph or an Esther or a Mary or, or the disciples. It's just too far out of my reach. So God, in his infinite wisdom, decided that this account about the life of Jonah would be included. And so I read about Jonah and I think, if God can use this indecisive believer with anger issues to play a role in 120,000 people turning to God, then maybe He can use me and He can use you. He can use all of us together. Now it appears as if Jonah has changed. And you might say, uh, I remember reading that last verse with you. How can you say Jonah changed? Well, he obviously grew in his trust of God's timing and plan. He became more humble and less selfish. And I'll tell you how I know that. It's because Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. And he doesn't speak of any overwhelming or positive qualities about himself, although he must have had some. He doesn't paint a picture of this great season of victory in his life. Instead, he paints this picture of this selfish, angry, rebellious man. And he paints a realistic picture of his lack of faith. But then he highlights his failures more than his successes. And we say, thank you, Jonah. You've just given us some hope. And I'm so thankful that when God said, Now it's time to write down what happened, that Jonah didn't take his quill and run in the other direction like he has on a couple of occasions already. But he just told the story, including his own shortcomings. So it's almost as if Jonah is trying to get across one truth. No one likes to be told what to do, but when the God of the universe is the one telling you, then you better obey Love even those you don't feel like you should love or even deserve your love. Love those who are different from you. Why? It's because God loves them. And the root of his anger was being told to do something for a people group he didn't care for. And has God ever communicated to you, just given you the sense that you need to maybe come through more clearly. Maybe he has placed on your heart the desire to go on a short-term missions trip. Or maybe he has challenged you to be more generous in your giving. Or, Or maybe you've sensed him challenging you to share your faith with someone else. Or maybe he has convicted you and challenged you to give your life to him and be baptized into him. I'm going to give you some homework this week. Normally, we come, we worship, We have communion, and then like the apostles, they sang a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives after the Lord's Supper. But I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. There are three things, and you just need to choose two of them. It's your choice. Pray is the first one. If you've never been baptized by full immersion in water, I'm going to ask you to offer this simple prayer this week. Lord, speak to me. Lay it on my heart that you want me to do this. And for those of you that have already made that decision, uh, to become disciples of Christ and be immersed into him, I want you to think about the roadblocks that were in the way when you made that decision. And I want you to pray for others so that the roadblocks can be removed from them and that they would have open and receptive hearts. And then I'm going to ask you to fast So it's not going to be for 40 days like the king of Nineveh requested of all his people. But I'm just asking that sometime this week you intentionally skip a meal. Now if you don't eat breakfast anyway, you've lucked out a little bit here. And you can use that time if you wish. But I want you to give up something physical and concentrate on spiritual things during just that 30 minute time session. Pray for the Ukrainians that are under the invasion of the Russians. Pray for the spiritual starvation and situation in our own city. Pray that there would be a revival with people coming back to God. And then the last thing I'm going to assign you is to reach out this week and have a spiritual conversation with someone. It could be a friend. It could be a neighbor. It could be a co-worker. It could be someone in your own home, a family member. It could also be someone else in the church that you know of that's struggling to make a decision to give their life to Christ. And I want you to talk to that person and just see what God is going to do. So there you have it, two or three choices. I want you to pray for what we see going on in our world and pray for what could be happening in your own life. I want you to fast and be in prayer. And then I want you to reach out to someone this week if you've never turned your life over to Christ, this is your opportunity to do what the people of Nineveh did, to repent and surrender their lives to Jesus. Tell me about that. Tell any of our other leaders about that. And we'd just be overjoyed to guide you through what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ.